Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. And we are live. Great. Hello, well, everybody. Another hello, and welcome to another word in your ear. And uh, I think it's fair to say this is the first time that we've had a guest who once handcuffed themselves to Andy Warhol. It's the author of the immensely entertaining memoir, Confess, about his time before and in uh, Judas Priest, the excellent Rob Halford. Rob, wonderful to see you. And uh, how is how is life in – you're in Arizona, aren't you? How, how's the weather there? Yes. Hi, guys. Hi, everybody. It's great to be with you. Um, it's a scorcher. We've had a blistering summer. And uh, so combine that with this hideous pandemic. And who knew? Who knew 2020 would turn out to be what it's turned out to be? But we battle on. We battle on. We keep that stiff upper lip. The British, you know, we will get through this together, which Good. we will. Well, look, yes. we'll let, let's go back to Britain for the, for the start of this. Traditionally, when we have guests on Word in Your Ear, we always start by asking them if they can remember what music playing equipment was in their house when they were a child. Did you have a record player? Did you have a radiogram? Did you have a radio? What did you have? Can you remember? Yes, I can vividly. That's a great question, guys. That's a great question. And... The one I remember the most vividly was over at my grandparents' house in the Birchalls near in Walsall. And uh, I used to love going there. I talk about it in my book. Um, I used to love spending as much time as possible with my grandparents, like all kids do. Um, but they had, um, in the corner of the living room, in the corner was this really big... Um, I don't know what the name of the brand was, but it was a record player that only played um, the big old Bakelite 78. 78, RPM, right, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. It wouldn't even play 45s. No, I'm sure. But they had that. My grandfather had a pile of these um, 78s, uh, but there was this dial. And as a little kid, I could remember being fascinated by holding this like big dial on the front of the radio and slowly turning it and all of these things coming in, you know, people talking uh, in a different language and, um, of course, all these different kinds of music. Guys, I go all the way back to Billy Cotton, right. all the way back to Arthur Askey, you know. I go all that way back and I'm so blessed to have that as a childhood memory. So that's a very vivid memory for me about Actually, my on the Arthur experience. Asking, 
on the Arthur Astley front, we wanted to ask you because you, you mentioned your first job, I think, when you were, I think you were about 14, you worked in the Wolverhampton Grand and saw all these extraordinary kind of musical stars like Tommy Trinder. Can you remember the other people? This is obviously something that, 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 that set you on, on a course towards, uh, towards kind of, you know, being on stage, really. But I mean, can you remember what other acts you saw? Well, it was it was incredible because that really was like a tipping point for me. When you work on the side of the stage, like so many valuable and important people do in the entertainment industry, especially in live theatre, you just wish you were on that stage. You wish you were on, you were under that spotlight. Yeah. So that's one of the reasons I kind of pulled away from that from that first job that I had as a young teen. But um, it was. Guys, it was everybody. It was like uh, it was Doily Cart, Royal Opera, it was oh, Royal really? Ballet. Uh, there were all these various incredible um, traveling traveling repertory group theaters. So every week you'd have a different play, you know. Um, yeah, people like Tommy Trinder, some of the greatest classical pianist players of the time. I remember one guy. He was he was huge. I mean, I'd never heard of him, but he, he would sell out, you know. And it was my job, um, as he would walk out on stage, I remember this vividly, to crank this this device that brought the mic up in the middle of the stage. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Because, <laughs> because he had to come up and say, hello, it's great to be here, yada, yada, yada. And then he would play the piano for yeah. like an hour. Yeah. Yeah. But... So before he'd come on, I'd done all my, you know, bits and bobs, making sure the place was clean and everything and swept the stage and so on and so forth. And I need to remember this because I cranked the mic, I cranked the mic up as he walked to the front of the stage. And as he started to talk, all this dust went flying off the microphone <laughs> because I hadn't closed the little hole cover of the mic. I'd swept all this dust down this hole in the middle of the stage, thinking that's where you put it, you know. So, this mic came up, this huge mega classic pianist, and he, he goes, up, It is wonderful to be here, cough splutter, because all these yeah. dust particles are <laughs> yeah, flying yeah. around. It's crazy, isn't it? How a little thing like that yeah. can become an indelible memory. Yeah. yeah. So it was everybody. It was everybody. Yeah. But, um, you, but you were really, it was show business. It was, you know, it was being on stage really excited you from a young age. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> talk in the book about before I left school, um, I was going to enrol um, with a an arts uh, theatre study group kind of college in Birmingham. Got all the paperwork, had some chats with different people, and that was my initial plan. But something just through the connectivity of life, I, I got this this job offer as a basically starting off as a tea boy at the Wolverhampton Grand, and within a year I was operating all the lights. You know, I was doing the full-on light productions for every conceivable performance. So, yeah, and I think, again, little kids, we, we, when, you, when you're a child, you're fascinated by dressing up and make-believe and fantasy. Yeah, and yeah. I, think, I think I've carried that through into my, even to my almost seventh decade. I'm just a big kid. I'm a big daft kid in, in a lot of respects, you know, and I'm so happy that I can still feel that way. Now, yeah, just j- jumping about between your various early jobs, Mark and I were fascinated to learn that you were a manager in Harry Fenton, See, we're yeah. all at the same age. We remember <laughs> Harry Fenton. We remember Harry Fenton. Polyester suits. <laughs> I think I actually bought one. Yeah. And you were the brand manager, weren't you? Yep. 
Same this is deal. The formative part of your uh, becoming Rob. Yeah. Same deal. Went in, went in as a as a junior, and I was managing the place within the year. I don't mess around, guys. I don't mess yeah. around. Um, yeah. But Kipper ties. Yeah, I bet. And, yes. Um, and the big wide lapels. Big lapels. Uh, wide boy lapels. And there's a funny bit in the story uh, in the book where I talk about <laughs> on my nights out, I would uh, take a take a shirt or another pe- another item and wear it out <laughs> and put it back in the bag <laughs> and, <then laughs> stuff and flog it. You know, and it'd be smelling of like woodbines. Wood, <laughs> wood binds and uh, wood binds and brute. Remember brute? Oh, Henry certainly. Cooper. Henry yes, Cooper. Yeah. Henry Cooper. Yeah. Splashing all over. Splashing and all over. Kevin Keegan. Yeah. Kevin Keegan was probably a, a Harry Fenton customer. He looks as if he was decked yeah. out. Yeah. <laughs> Harry Fenton's finest. Now, you, musically, you were you're a big Beatles fan from early on, but you were. Your head was really turned by Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath and all that stuff. Is that fair to say? Yeah, because um, what a great time to to grow up, guys, in the way the music was changing, particularly through the 60s, that cultural revolution that was happening pretty much on every, every level. It wasn't only music. It was art in general. It was politics. It was just the social strata of every kind of conceded conceivable element of life you know um in 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 the uk especially so along with that um things were getting louder weren't they so when you think about it when you think about it guys the 50s was a lot quieter than the 60s right the 60s the volume went up and that included music as well so the music was getting harder and stronger and more powerful and more potent and of course as a young person you're drawn towards the noise aren't you that's what attracts you you don't want something placid and laid back you want something that's roaring in your face and so also there's a major connection between the midlands and, and hard rock isn't there yeah we, we we've never been able to figure it out have we although i have referenced the beatles um for this question because Prior to that, everything came out of London. All the music came out of London. The London scene was where it happened. And here's these lads from Liverpool, and they kind of they kind of changed that. They changed the game of like, well, I mean, I know I know eventually they they moved to London, but for the longest time, Liverpool was their home, and it still is to a great extent in memories and so forth. But 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 um, I think as a result of that, throughout the country, particularly in the Midlands. Um, a lot of bands were like, hey, we don't have to go down there. We can stay here. You know, we can get our act together in this part of the world. And so yeah. all these glorious musicians and bands uh, started to really push through in the uh, 70s in particular. So how do you, how, what took you from managing Harry Fenton and so forth to being uh, the lead singer of Judas Priest? What were the steps that led you there? Well, it was a, a slow and steady progression. I think I kind of kick the tyres, as they say, with some of those very early bands, whether it was Thark, God knows where that name came from, or Athens Wood, or Abraxis, or Hiroshima, or Lord Lucifer. All these bands that you knock around with as a young musician, you're learning your craft, you know, you're, you're figuring things out and how to hold the mic, and particularly for me as a singer, learning the potential of, of the voice. So uh, then we all kind of push forward to that moment when my sister was dating Ian, the bass player from uh, Judas Priest and the, the singer at the time uh, chose to move on 
And Sister Sue says, hey, my brother's got a good voice. You should let him have an audition. You know, the rest is heavy metal history. Right. What do you do? What do you do for your audition? Did your audition involve a certain amount of showmanship, or was it just strictly singing? It was strictly singing. Yeah, I think that's the primary factor of a band. Your 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 skill as the musician for whatever it is, whether you're the drummer, the bass player, the singer, the guitar player. Everybody's listening to you. They're not really watching what you do initially. Mm-hmm. They're listening to to how well you can play that particular thing. And um, so that's how it was for me. It was all about the voice. But then all the all of the other components, I guess I'm lucky in that respect because, you know, some people just stand and hold the mic. I'm all over the place. You can't right. stop me once I get out on that stage. And I love it, you know. Uh, and, and I suppose that was a little bit of an extra bonus from from some aspects of what I do in Priest. You get the impression in the book that it was uh, just really, really hard work. You know, I mean, just flogging up and down the country in, the, in a van. At one point, I think you sleep in the van overnight when you're recording the first album. And you're supporting Budgie, Thin Lizzy, and all this extraordinary. And you know, what were the big turning points that 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 got you from that kind of relentless slog when you didn't appear to be getting anywhere to 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 real success? Well, it is a slog. It's like any profession; yeah. you've got to pay your dues. You know. And you become better as you do pay your dues, or you should get better. Um, and so that's what we did, like all bands are doing right now, or will be when, when we're able to get back out on the road. You have to go out there and show everybody what you can do. And that meant going up and down that M1. Oh, my God, we practically lived on the M1, you know. Uh, and uh, going up as far as Inverness and sleeping by Loch Ness, and the, then a song comes out of of that experience 25 years later and ends up on an album. All these beautiful memories that where, where you're paying your dues, but you're learning your craft. And the tipping point is the first time you get on a ferry and you go to Germany and you're going, you're playing for a whole different audience. And then you're going all over Scandinavia and then into France and Spain and Italy. And, and all of these are little tiny steps then, then the, the, the main tipping point is when you get your record deal and you make your first record. It's like writing your first book. You know, it's an, it's an accomplishment. And you know yeah. that that record has potential to go anywhere around the world and spread the, spread the news about your music. So how, this may be impossible to answer, but it always fascinates me. At what point did you start making money? <laughs> how long did it take? no i'm laughing because it was a slug i mean you know those early days you'd probably get like a fiver or a tenner and it went in the van to, for the petrol or to get a new tire you know yeah but later um, on when you started touring and you you're playing america and you're you're, you're touring in a very kind of organized fashion you're relentless aren't you but Did you start start to, you know, see progress out of that? Yes, you do. You do. And let's face it, guys, it's a job and you want to, you want to wage, you know, we, we, we didn't even have the pediums. We love our pediums even now. Yeah. yeah. Pediums in those days. But um, I remember my first substantial amount of money vividly because it let me buy my little house in Walsall, which I've still got and I'll never I'll never sell because that's going to stay in the family, the Halford clan forever. And, and, uh, and you know, prices for property were, compared to what they are now, man, it's unbelievable. So 
that's what I did with my first um, first decent paycheck, and everybody wants their own little nest, and that was my nest for the first time ever. Who were the bands that you thought of as being your main rivals then? You know, at that stage when you were when you were you know traveling up and down the M1, who who were the, who were the people you were, you were competing with? I suppose we were we were aware of other bands that were doing uh, had moved further ahead than we were, but they were more of an inspiration than a rivalry. You mentioned Budgie, you know, they were good friends yeah. of ours, and they they took us out on a bunch of a bunch of tours. Um, but uh, I don't really have that many strong memories in that respect from associating you know, rivalry as as such. So I think that that your inspiration uh, comes from the other bands that you're listening to, the other bands at the time that were were moving ahead, Um, which is great because, I mean, we all have our inspirers, don't we? We all have our heroes, whether it's in the book world or the record world or the movie world, whatever. What doesn't matter what what you are, or what you do in life. There's always somebody who you you have respect for and you appreciate uh, how far they've gotten and what they've done. Now, there's it's quite plain in the book that you you went through long periods of great success, particularly in America, where I think it's fair to say you were you were enjoying the full fruits of your success. <laughs> in, a, in a fairly kind of unashamed way, you were indulging yourself in, you know, alcohol, drugs, all kinds of things. Uh, was that because you were young and foolish, or just does that just go with the territory? Yeah, it's a rite of passage, especially in our world. It's just a rite of passage, you know. And for me, uh, that rite of passage <laughs> became extreme because I found out later on that um, just because of my addictive personality and, and, and also the way my body is made, um, I couldn't just have one drink. I had to drink until I blacked out. I couldn't just have one drug. I had to do as much as I could before I went off into some crazy place. So, um, you know, I, I've said this before. I really miss that. I, I miss some of those times because let's face it you 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 go for a night out you have a glass of wine and something else and your inhibitions go and you're loving it you're raw and it's great um but the the opposite the flip side of that for me was that i was just feeling really terrible physically mentally it was becoming a real um challenge for me as a person and it got to some extreme uh, places as as we talk about in the book so tell us as briefly as you can about you left the group in what the early nineties, and you're incredibly yeah. honest about that because you talk about the fact you left and and actually things went really really badly, and you 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 kind of <laughs> wrote them a letter, didn't you, saying basically I wish I hadn't I didn't mean to leave and I I'd like to come back. It was uh, was an important part of my life as a musician because I was able to find out a lot about it myself in in the creative sense uh that i couldn't have discovered if i hadn't have taken that th- th- those steps so um 
those those two or three projects that I was involved with, the, the fight album, the fight albums, War of Words and Small Deadly Space, the project with Trent Reznor and John Five uh, called the Two Voyeurs album, and then the Bridge Back to Priest with the two uh, two or three Halford albums, the first one particularly Resurrection. Um, but yeah, honesty and being brutally frank is what has basically driven me um, since I became clean and sober 36 years ago, you know, I don't really have to hide behind anything anymore. I just speak it out. And however you choose to interpret that and opinionate that and have feelings about that is entirely up to you, uh, which is the way I wasn't thinking prior to that. I was putting everybody first. You go first, you go first. Yeah. And putting myself second. You can't live your life like that. You know, you've got to put your own house in order, learn to love yourself and, Every, everything generally takes care of itself after you've reached that place. So, yeah, all this, um, all this thing like, oh my god, I can't believe he said that. Oh my god, I can't believe he done that. Well, I did. <laughs> there it is for you to read about. That's why it's called confess. Yeah, so, and that, that key date in this book is uh, is I think February the fourth, nineteen ninety eight, when you give an interview to NTV. Uh, tell people about that. Well, I was in New York to promote uh, this two record that I did with Trent and John Five and and Bob Marlette and all these other great talented people. Uh, it was, everything I do in music, it's all it's everybody. You know, it's not. Uh, uh, it might be my name. I might be pushing forward a little bit than 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 the rest, but it's it's all teamwork. It's all team effort. So I was there promoting that, and um, I was just taking an interview in the MTV studios and. I, I still to this day, guys, I can't remember the specific question, but I just sat in in a stream of con- conscious, unconscious, subconscious talk. Well, da, da, da. well, speaking as a gay man, I blah, 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 you know. And then the then the course, the the, the uh, there was a clatter of the producer dropping his clipboard. <laughs> uh, oh, my God, Half has just come out on MTV on my show, Scoop. Uh, and that was it. So... Um, you know, did finish the interview, went back to my hotel room and then the phone started to ring and and all this kind of feedback was instantaneous. And it li- literally in those days, um, it was big news because <laughs> here I am in this, you know, this big macho man, heavy metal singer yeah. and this big heavy metal macho man world of heavy metal, as it was then in the initial stages. Um it was just, uh, it was a big deal. It was big news. But there have been all sorts of hints, and they're all the way. I mean, there was a song he wrote in 1977, Raw Deal, on the Sin After Sin album about the uh, kind of famous gay hangout and Fire Island. And he used to wear the coloured handkerchiefs, didn't he, on stage, sending out those kind of <laughs> coded messages. I mean, I find it hard to believe. I mean, David, I was talking about this earlier in the rock press. We all just naturally assumed that you were gay, actually. <laughs> I find it hard to believe. That that many fans just didn't didn't realise, but they didn't clearly. Yeah, they absolutely didn't. Uh, the vast majority of them had no clue, and um, and yeah, I've I've often uh, mused on the fact that there I was, you know, decked from head to toe in leather whips. <laughs> absolutely, bullwhip, exactly. <laughs> the bullwhip whipping the crowd. Um, but here's the thing about that. Um, that whole um, adventure into the visual side of the band started purely out of the fact that 
if you look at me on BBC Pebble Mills broadcast of the Old Grow Whistle Test, and I'm singing in wearing my sister's purple top that I took out of the wardrobe because I got nothing to wear. And you look at that guy and you go, the music is great, but he looks a bit dodgy. He looks very dodgy, you know? Yeah. So I went from dodgy to dodgier with that heavy metal leather whips and chains thing but you see that visual completely married with the sound of the music it was strong it was powerful yeah. it was potent it had all the right visual ingredients the fact that there's a there's a a kind of a subculture in in the in the gay world in the the leather scene was just by association, you know. Yeah. It was never, and, I, and I've said, I've said all the time that, that there was never an agenda on my part. There was never like um, I'm hiding in the closet with a spotlight. It was never any of that, um, because until I came out, um, I was fearful of damaging the band. Uh, in my mind, if and, and to some extent, everybody's uh, theory. Label management, everybody. You don't talk about this. You don't go and yeah. Hang the management the didn't bars. tell you to, to, to kind of tone it down, didn't to they? To tone well, it down. Yeah, yeah they were and really I could understand. I could understand. It was a different. It was a different world then. It was a totally yeah. different world. You know? Yeah. But that that song about Raw Deal, we were making our first record with CBS Columbia and Roger Glover from Purple was producing. It was just a bunch of words. I don't know where the idea came from. Like all my yeah. words come from the, the sound of the the music. I'm given the the instrumentation or work with the instrumentation. And I don't know where that was from. And again, I mean, was it Freudian? Was it, was it Freudian? Was I like, oh, this is who I am and I'm going to burst out the closet in this song? Because for the most part, that song was just a song with, with, with some yeah. words about, about this place. There was never, well, oh, he's singing about this because he is that. There was never any of that, you know? Right. You uh, you talk in the book about you, 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 I get the impression you like meeting people. Uh, Mark mentioned at the beginning about you meeting Andy Warhol. You also in this book meet the Queen. Uh, uh, tell us about this. You 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 uh, you're very outgoing person. Uh, will, will we be correct in thinking that? Yeah, I get that from my dad. My dad would talk to anybody, <laughs> even the Queen. Even the Queen, even even his dad, it, it brought the, the Halford family have the gift of the gab. And uh, I just love it. I just love people. I love life. I love people. It doesn't, everything. I just love meeting people and talking and whatever, whatever. Um, so, Who are some of the most impressive people you've met then? Well, there's the extremes, isn't it? You get Andy Warhol, who was like the Queen of New York, and then Her Majesty the Queen yeah, yeah. in Buckingham yeah. Palace. That was just very surreal. It was such a thrill. Yeah. She was holding, a, at the time, a 25th anniversary for British music. And uh, there was only one, one person per visit because they didn't want to pack the room too, too much. I was, I was on tour with Priest in Finland, and we had a couple of days off. So I flew back to the UK after the show in Ulu in Finland, northern Finland. And then the next day I met the Queen, and the next day I went back to work. But it was just so it was just so surreal going in a taxi, in a you know, a black taxi a London taxi cab, through the gates of Buckingham Palace. Whereas a little kid, you would go down on school trips and you'd peer through the gates. Is she there? Is she waving at me? Can you see? Yeah, Is she yeah. behind the cur- Is she behind the net curtains? That kind of thing. 
you go from that to going through the gates and then going into that same entrance where you've seen it a, a hundred thousand times where Her Majesty comes in and out of there for doing various royal protocol. And then you're in this big entrance and you're going up the stairs and they're going into this room and they give you a badge and and then you see these people and then the equerry says, would you like to meet Her Majesty? Oh, yes, please. And then she's standing in front of you. It's just mad. It's mad. It just seems so surreal. I and have to like, ask you, all sorts of protocol, you're not allowed to shake her hand, are you? Is that right? <laughs> no. <laughs> you, Silla's you can't start Silla's, a conversation with her. Yeah. No, Scylla's digging me in the ribs. Yes, you were Scylla Black. So, you were with Scylla Black and the Queen. Yeah. I think that's quite, that's that's quite something. I have to ask, what were you wearing? Oh, I had the... Uh, I was very formal. I had the, just the black... Uh, the black suit and and the, the tie and my shades, you know, I was all all like a, a kind of a the uh, beatnik, <laughs> the beatnik rock and roll look. Right, yeah. right. Now, Jesus Priest, you were supposed to be touring b- this year before this pandemic happened. Do you expect to be, you know, when it, when it's all over, do you expect to be doing that again? Yeah, everybody is. All of my friends, we stay in touch. All all of the the great friends that I have in the music world, because you know, it, it, it's part of what it's part of the substance in our lives as musicians is, is being with these beautiful fans that have literally given us this life. Because you can't exist without the fans that support you. So we're all so desperately wanting to go out and meet them the thing about this vaccine is it's just a tool it's not the cure it's a tool it's going to take a long 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 time to get over this as horrible as that sounds the cure is going to be a, the, the vaccine is going to be incredibly important but i think this covid thing is going to live with this like the flu i mean i had my flu jab last week you know got to get a flu jab yeah. Uh, particularly for, for people yeah. from our generation. I hope yeah. you've had your flu jabs, guys. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yes. So, yes, so we have. Don't, don't just you miss it. You must miss it out. enormously, live performance. There, there are some incredible bits in the book where you talk about the thrill of being out in front of 80,000 people when you're supporting Led Zeppelin. There's a brilliant moment where you had to stand in for Ozzy Osbourne. Which festival was that when Ozzy couldn't, couldn't he had bronchitis or something and you had to stand in and sing with Black Sabbath? Where was that? Yeah. Yeah, that was there was a couple of times that you you do it, you know you help your mates out. First time was in Costa Mesa, yeah, um, where the the first kind of official unofficial um, reunion of Black Sabbath took place. So I I did a couple of shows there for uh, with Sabbath before Ozzy came out and joined the band, um, and then a few years later um, Ozzy's sick, loses his voice and. Sharon calls me up at the hotel and Robbie, Ozzy's not feeling very well. I'll give him my love. Yeah, he's got a bit of a problem with his voice. He wants to know if you'll help him out some and help him help him out with the show. Yeah, sure. Which show? Tonight. Tonight. <laughs> tonight. Yeah, tonight. Oh, okay. So, you know, you do your gig, have a shower, change your shirt and go back out in your front Black Sabbath because that's what you do. That's what you do for your mates. You like you do. Like you do. So this is, um, so you're talking about going back out on the road again when it's all over. There has been a Jesus priest since 1969. Is that right? Yeah, in in name and concept, yeah, 69, yeah. That's an awful long time. (laughs) Tell me about it, guys. (laughs) So 
They, I understand you've been put up for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but you, you haven't been admitted. Are you bothered? I'm bothered. I'm bothered. Look at my face. Look at my face. I'm bothered. <laughs> um, I love Catherine Tate. Um, well, let's put it this way. You know, you have all of these institutions here in America. You've got the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for music. You've got the, uh, the Basketball Hall of Fame. You've got the Baseball Hall of Fame, the football. You've got all of these places where I think essentially it's just, um, it's just a really, really nice, cool recognition of what you've done, the work that you've done, the, the things that you've achieved, the place that you've been put at and so on and so forth. So... Am I bothered if we ever get in? Not really, but I think we do deserve to be in there because I look at the list of people that are in there and I feel that we, we have a place and it would, it would not only be for, for, for Judas Priest, it would, it would be for British music, particularly British heavy metal music, and that's a beautiful achievement. You know, Sabbath are in there, um, which is great. Uh, but I've always said that as far as what the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame represents, the genre of heavy metal music hasn't really been looked after enough and respected enough. So I'd like to feel that eventually we will get in. So the book's called Confess. What do you hope people will get from it, particularly Jesus Priest fans? Well, you know, an insight as to the other parts of my life that you you're not aware about. Uh, I mean, I've, ta I've talked about my sobriety endlessly. I've talked about my, my struggles in finding the comfort of, uh, of accepting and loving myself in my own sexual identity. Um, but, you know, the, 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 there's, there was going to be a, an unofficial autobiography of me, inevitably. It's just the way it works in rock and roll. So I just felt that now was the time to do it officially and just to... And just to say everything that I want to say about myself, you know, and I, I, I have no real reason. Why do you do this, Rob? Or to, I haven't got a clue. You know, just thought, let's do it because I've never, ever been in this world before. It was wonderful uh, just in the, in the whole concept of writing a book about the, the, the vast majority of your life with, with my good friend Ian Gittings. I have to give the props to my friend Ian Gittings because all of this great feedback I'm getting is the fact that he was able to literally put my voice onto the pages and that, you know, I check my social media every, every five minutes <laughs> at, at Rob, at Rob Halford legacy, at Rob Halford legacy on Instagram and Rob Halford Facebook. And a lot of the, a lot of the fans that are, that are reading the book are saying, it's just like having you sitting in front of me and you talking to me. And I think that's a great, uh, a great expression of the, the wonderful talent that Ian Gittings has uh, for, put, for putting, my, putting my voice onto the pages so you, you feel that connection. So, but also, um, just because I've been blessed with such a, an extraordinary life to some extent, um, it's not only just for my fans, it's for anybody that would might be interested in this guy that, you know, sings for this incredible heavy metal band and his name's Rob Halford and he's got a book out called Confess because I'm not unique. These stories are not unique by any stretch of the imagination. Maybe some are, but the vast majority is me in my life, living my life 
and just sharing my life stories. Well, thanks very much. Well, we're glad you've done so, Rob. And yeah, uh, it's really, really entertaining. And you know, best of luck with the book. And uh, you know, when this bloody war is over, as we say, and you're back on the road, best of luck with that as well. Thanks very well, much. It, it's been a it's been a fantastic uh, uh, um, visual. Uh, what do they call it? Virtual, whatever it is. I don't know what these, <laughs> yeah, things, virtual, they call yeah. these things are. But it's been great, and I hope everybody's bit that has been, joined us has had uh, fun and been entertained and got some more insights. Uh, but thanks, guys. I've really enjoyed. It. It's a great way Thank to start you. the metal week. Great way to start heavy metal Monday, as we call it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thanks very much, Rob. Thanks so much, Rob. That's brilliant. Okay. See you guys. This podcast was brought to you by The Word.